following is a production of Word Alive Creative Arts. Welcome to the podcast of Word Alive International Outreach in Oxford, Alabama, an apostolic center for transformation and freedom. We pray today that you will be blessed and strengthened by this powerful message. on God's heart for where we're at, not just as a nation, but globally, that uh, the whole earth's been put on pause because God is ready to do something uh, that's uh, needed to be done for a long time and release his righteousness and his justice throughout the earth. The Bible says, when gross darkness covers the earth, arise and shine for thy light has come and the glory of the Lord is going to be seen upon you. I believe we're headed for some of the best days we've ever seen in the kingdom of God. I know it's been difficult. I know it's been a trying season. I know there's, uh, we've had spikes in the virus again, etc. But I'm telling you, God's up to something. And we're in a very significant season. These next 10 days, actually, I don't have time to preach this morning on this, but it's known as the dire straits. This is the time biblically, biblically known as the narrow straits. It's when Israel was poised at the promised land to go into their destiny and through unbelief didn't enter in. And this is not the time to back down in fear. This is not the time to quit believing. This is the time to go all the way through into the promise. I'm going to tell you, we're about to come out on the other side of this thing and we're going to be so much better off than when we went in and we're about to see one of the greatest revivals of the Holy Spirit that we've ever seen. I believe it with all my heart. And I, and I believe the message is the message of justice. We talked three weeks ago, what does the Lord require? What is the Lord asking you? Know, because everybody's saying it's time to repent, but repent from what? And we realize the prophets were calling repent from injustice. And so we're supposed to act justly. We're supposed to love mercy. We're supposed to walk humbly with our God. Then the next week we talked about what did Jesus say about justice. And we realized that Jesus' whole message, his entire anointing that was on his life was about preaching the gospel to the poor and about the heart of justice that Jesus carried all the way out through the, through the New Testament. Today we want to talk just for a few moments before we go back into worship about the doctrine of justice. The doctrine of justice. As our, uh, Mayor Kraft was uh, mentioned earlier that you know, the preachers that didn't want to fellowship because of doctrinal issues. The true purpose of doctrine is not to separate us. The true purpose of doctrine is to empower us. A true doctrine is something that actually brings about the right behaviors. And it's not just an analytical thing or a thought process. It's actually a, a, a doctrine is something that produces works. So look at James 2, 15 through 17. Here's what it says. What good is it if my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself that is not accompanied by action is dead. And I'm persuaded that a lot of our Christian faith in our Western world is dead faith. We may go to church, we may even pay a tithe, but like the mayor was talking about, we just sit and we don't, there's no action behind our belief. Well, James is saying, if you want to talk to me about what you believe, I will show you what I believe by my works. 
This is what we call the doctrine of justice. Now, the New Testament bears this out when you realize that doctrine leads from faith or belief to action. In Acts chapter 2, look at this. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Somebody say out loud, doctrine. And fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, all who believed were together, had all things in common. Watch this. Sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. The true apostolic doctrine was not just a doctrine of thought, but it actually produced an action to where people's hearts were so impacted and changed that they took their own stuff and begin to make sure that everybody around them had plenty of everything they needed. Now, I don't know about you, but I've traveled all over the United States of America preaching. I've traveled in 80 nations of the world, and there's few and far between churches that actually live out this doctrine. Not just about me and my family getting blessed and us getting saved, because most of our Western cultural doctrine is a personal salvation. It's just let me get saved, let me get my family saved, and then we're all going to go to heaven and everything's going to be all right. We're going to live our life and everybody else around us, you find your own way. But that's not the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ, the apostolic doctrine, was that once you experience, yes, salvation for you and yes, salvation for your family, it so transformed the human heart that you live the rest of your life for others, not yourself. This is the true apostolic doctrine of the church. Church was never supposed to be the place we just come get blessed and leave and go live our lives. A true apostolic church is a place where we're so transformed by the grace of God and the justification by faith that it plays out in our daily living. So how do we get there? How do we move into this place of living justice? I believe the reason the streets of America are crying for justice is because justice has not been preached in the church. And I'm telling you, it's time for you and I as believers to get a paradigm shift of what it means to be a Christian and to follow the Lord. I, would, I said last week, God's going to get his reputation back. And this mean-spirited Christianity that's just exclusive, we're in, you're out, that's coming to an end. And God's going to demonstrate that he not just loved the church, he loves the world. Because it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so God is moving in the church and about to move through us in a spirit of justice like never before. Now, to understand this doctrine, number one, we've got to understand the doctrine of creation. That we're all created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26-27 says it like this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We are not an accident. We didn't get birthed by the Big Bang. A creator created the earth and created every individual on the earth and breathed his own life. You wouldn't be alive today if you're not breathing the breath of God. And that's not just Christians. I'll be back to this side in a minute. I'll y'all catch me in a minute. Not just Christians. I said every human being 
on the earth is filled with the breath of God because it says when you're born, He breathes His breath into you and you wouldn't even be breathing today if God wasn't inside of you and you didn't have the dignity of God as a human being. In the Hebraic world, the, the Jews believe God's name is so holy you can't say it. But some rabbis believe it's so holy it's not necessary to say Because his name is Yahweh. That's God's name. Yahweh. And every time you inhale and exhale, you're saying his name. That's why it says let everything that has breath. People that don't even know God are saying his name. Because they've got his breath in them. Because we're all created in the image of God. God is the father of us all. God didn't become your father when you accepted Jesus. You got Jesus because he was your father. God's not a baby daddy. God's not just spitting out babies carelessly around the world with no care or concern for them. Every human being born on the earth is special and significant and created in the image of God. God said he so values human beings. Once God puts his image image and breath on a human life... We become of infinite, inestimable value to God and to everyone around us. God said humans are so valuable, there will be an accounting for each and every one on the earth. When Cain slew Abel, it says in Genesis 9, And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting for every animal and from each human being as well. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Every human being born, there's accountability in heaven of what happens to them, how they're treated, and what happens to them. And those who issue the treatment are held accountable in heaven because humans are that valuable. They are so valuable, there's something so valuable about being a human being to God that not only may they not be murdered and not have be, have a, be accountable, but they can't even be cursed without failing to give them their due. Based on the worth bestowed on them by God, James says, With our mouth we bless God our Father, and with our mouth we curse men, who has been made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. Jesus said in the New Testament, Thou shalt not murder. You've heard that? I say unto you, Don't even call a brother a fool, or you will be in danger of hell fire. God is so serious about human beings, how you treat them, not just murder them, how you talk about them. Can you think about our country just for a minute, how we talk about each other as human beings, the right attacking the left, the left attacking the right, and we're spouting out these curses over human beings that are created in the image of God. Whether you want to believe this or not, Donald Trump is created in the image of God. Nancy Pelosi is created in the image of Come on now. So be careful and don't jump on this party bandwagon. 
I understand convictions and beliefs, and I'm all about voting that and, and, and making that voice known. But don't get bought into the political, political rhetoric and get on God's bad side by speaking evil of other human beings that are created in His image. And I'm talking about all humans. I remember when I was watching TV when Saddam Hussein was killed. And they threw big parties in the streets of America, which I understand the concept. But when I saw it on TV, the Spirit of God fell on me and I began to weep for him. Because for me, the Spirit of God was saying, he's human too. I can look at you just like you're looking at me now. We want to... This has got to be said. This is why we're where we're at. We don't value what God values. And we think just because you're a different culture or a different race or not from America, that somehow you are of less value. But every human being born on the face of the earth is of great and inestimable value to God. And we should treat them so. Martin Luther King, his whole speech, his whole message of civil rights was along these lines. Here's what he said. You see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of being born in the image of God. The idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. This gives him a uniqueness, it gives him worth, it gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no graduations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white key to a bass black key is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God, we will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and sisters and to respect the dignity and worth of every man and woman. This is why we must fight segregation with all our nonviolent might. So regardless of a man's record or character, All human beings have an irreducible glory and a significance to them because God loves them, because God made them, and God loves everything he made. Even the murderer on death row is to be treated with dignity and respect because it's a human being. This has to start in the church. We must begin to treasure each and every human being as the way of showing due respect for the majesty of their owner and their creator. And some of us are going to be very surprised one day when we get to heaven and we realize who's there and who's not. And who's there that's close to the Lord and who's not. It says the last shall be first, the first shall be last. And so my friend Rick Joyner who's a prophetic writer and sees prophetically, he had an experience. He was sitting in a park one day and he saw this old drunk just walking down the, uh, across the park and he was about to turn into an alley when he did this cat came out before him and he reared back to kick this cat just in pure anger and he stopped and paused and the cat, he let the cat walk on by. Rick thought it was odd, he didn't think much more about it, but about a year later he had a prophetic experience where the Lord let him go to heaven. 
And he said in, this, in his writings, he said, when I got to heaven, there were throng, throngs of people around the throne of God. Some people were near the throne of God and others were distant from it. But they seemed to all be glad to be there. He said what was interesting is when he got on the outside of the crowd, the distant part, some of his favorite preachers were in heaven but on the outside, the back of the crowd. And he went to him. he said, you are one of my favorite preachers. Your preaching was unbelievable. Your revelation was unmatched. Your, your profound insight. And he said, well, I'm just curious, why aren't you really close to the Lord? He said, well, Rick, he said, here it's not like you think it is. He said, here it's a different economy than the earth. He said, on the earth I was held in high esteem and I got great accolades from people. And yes, the Lord was with me and I did, I did do some great things for the Lord. But I only used a small portion of my potential and what I had been given for God. Therefore, here, because I was given so much and used only a portion, I'm here. Now, I'm glad to be here, as everybody is, but there are different spots here in heaven based on what you did with what you had. And so Rick made his way through the crowd, and he gets right next to the Lord, and he said, to his surprise, the drunk he had seen in the park that didn't kick the cat was set down next to the Lord. And he said, Lord, this can't be. I actually saw this guy on the earth. He was a drunk. And he was standing across the road and didn't kick, didn't kick a cat. I saw him on the earth. And the Lord said, yes, I know. And it took all the grace he had ever been given to not kick that cat. Because to much is given, much is required. All human beings are to be treated with dignity and respect because all human beings are valuable no matter what life has soiled them or spoiled them with. I was in a service where a man took out a $100 bill and he said, who wants this? Everybody's hand. He wrinkled it up. Who wants it? Everybody's hand up. He put it on the ground, stomped it, dirtied it with his feet. Who wants it? Everybody still wants it. He spit on it. Who wants it? Everybody wants it. Why? Even though it's been spit on, wrinkled, and soiled, and beat up, it's still valuable. And this is a message for us about human beings. You don't know what people have been through. You don't know what pain they've suffered. You don't know what brought them to the choice or decision they may have made. But in God's eyes, they're all valuable and they should all be treated with the utmost respect and dignity because of the majesty and the glory of their creator. Come on, somebody. It gets worse. The doctrine of stewardship. If God is the creator and author of all things, that means everything we have in life belongs to God. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Everything on this earth belongs to God. We're just, we're, he allows us to live on his dirt and breathe his air. Every, Psalm 24, everything is the Lord's, everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. God gave humanity authority over all the resources of the earth, but not ownership. We've received what we have in the way maybe a fund manager receives other monies to invest and manage it, just a steward, if you will, or maybe someone that owns an estate that you're a manager of the estate. 
We have authority over it, but we don't own it. This doctrine is so countercultural to America because Americans believe that everything we have basically is because of our work ethic and our hard work and the way we steward money and the way we save money and the way we invest. And basically, our work produces this. While the Bible does spell out that hard work will make you successful, it is still not the reason you have what you have. If you have money, privilege, status in any area today, it's due to the century you were born in, the place and the parents you were born to, your talents, capacities, and health, none of which you choose. You could have been born in any nation of the world. You could be living in Haiti today in the city of Sule, begging for, going through the garbage, looking for something to eat. You, you didn't choose to be born here. By God's grace, just by the pure grace of God, you wound up here. I wound up here. And what we've got to get in our minds is to be born in America is a privilege. To be born in America is a privilege. It's a grace of God on people's lives to get to be born in the nation of America. That's why people are crossing our borders trying to get here because it's such a privileged place to live with such great opportunities that exist nowhere else in the world. Hold on a minute. We're going through some stuff, but this is still a great place to live and it's still a great nation and it's still a place that's a privileged place to live. And we've got to believe, we've got to thank God for that, and it carries a responsibility. Not that we shut our borders and lock everybody out. We find a way to legally make it work. And allow God to continue to bless us because he raised us up to be a blessing to the world. And you and I have a responsibility in that as stewards of what God has given us. If you drove here in a, cl a climate-controlled car and you've got change in a jar at home and you ate this morning and you'll eat again tonight, you live in the top 5% of the world. So when Jesus makes all these requirements of rich people, don't think that's somebody else. It's us. We're stewards. So in short, all our resources are in the end the gift of God. That's why David, the richest man in the Bible, prayed like this. Blessed are you, O God of Israel, Father of old and forever. To you, God, belong the greatness and the might, the glory, the victory, the majesty, the splendor. Yes, everything in heaven, everything on earth, the kingdom, it's all yours. You've raised yourself high over all riches and glory. They all come from you. You rule over everything. You hold strength and power in the palm of your hand to build up and strengthen all. And here we are, O oh God, our God, giving thanks to you, praising your splendid name. But me, who am I and who are these people that we should presume to be giving something to you? Everything comes from you. All we're doing is giving back what we've been given from your generous hand. 
As far as you're concerned, we're homeless, shiftless wanderers like our ancestors. Our lives, mere shadows, hardly anything to us. God, our God, all, these, all this stuff, these piles of stuff for building a house of worship for you, honoring your holy name, it all came from you, and it was all yours in the first place. We're stewards. We don't own it. It's not ours. It's his. And if you got some of it, he gave it to you. So this mentality, I earned it, I keep it, it's mine, that's a false doctrine. That's not the doctrine of justice. Now, I'm not saying that God commands us to distribute our wealth equally to everybody. God doesn't want you to, this whole concept of socialism, this is not a biblical concept. This is not what God's talking about, a wealth distribution. No, that's not what God's talking about at all. But he simply says, if you've been blessed and privileged, always allow a portion of your blessing to be somebody else's. That's what God is saying. If, if, if we live this life, we wouldn't have any problems in our world. People would be satisfied and taken care of because a portion of those that have would be distributed. And what would, be, what would happen is they would get more. And the more they get, the more would be distributed. And over time, we could accomplish a lot. So Deuteronomy 24 says these. Number one, don't abuse a laborer who is destitute and needy. Whether he's a fellow Israelite living in your land or in your city, pay him at the end of each workday. He's living from hand to mouth and needs it now. If you hold back his pay, he'll protest to God and you'll have sin on your books. That's what God said. Deuteronomy 24. Number two, make sure foreigners and orphans get their just rights. Don't take the cloak of a widow as security for a loan. Don't ever forget that you once were slaves in Egypt and God, your God, got you out of there. I command you, do what I'm telling you. God said, if you start complaining about foreigners and strangers coming into your land, hold on. You were a foreigner and stranger when I came and got you. When you harvest your grain and forget a sheaf back in the field, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow so that God, your God, will bless you in all your work. Do you see that? That's talking about gleaning. If you had a field in, the, in this culture of the Bible and you own the whole field, God lets you eat the whole field. He said, just leave the corners so that the widow, the orphan, and the poor will have a place to go and glean. Isn't it interesting he didn't say charity? Just leave a place where they can come and glean themselves. Why? He wanted to preserve their dignity. They may not own the field. But God wanted them to have access to a portion of it. This is God's desire. This is the way God is calling the church to be. When you shake the olives off your trees, don't go back over the branches and strip them bare. Who's left is for the foreigner and the orphan and the widow. And when you cut the grapes in your vineyard, don't take the last grape. Leave a few for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Don't ever forget that you were a slave in Egypt. I command you, do what I'm telling you to do. God is saying if you're privileged, if you have resources, always have a portion that you're sharing with somebody else that's not as privileged as you are. In God's view, the poor does not have right to own your field, but they've got right to some of its produce. So to deprive the poor the right to glean was not to deprive them of charity, but to deprive them of justice. And this is where we get on God's bad side. Isaiah 58, paraphrase, I'm tired of your religious talk. This is what God said. He says, cry with a full-throated shout. 
and tell my people their sins. I'm tired of you coming and singing songs and worshiping and thinking everything's all right. I'm tired of you fasting when you're trying to get my attention. God said, I'm not even listening. This is what God said. He said, is this the type of fasting Spiritual life, I'm looking for just to humble yourself in a pious way to think you're earning favor with me. No, this is the fast I've chosen, says God, to relieve the bands of injustice, to feed the hungry, to share your food with the hungry, to clothe the naked, and to bring the homeless into your places of dwelling. God said, you start doing that, your healing will spring forth, your light will get turned on, I'll be your rear guard, you will cry, I will answer, you will speedily recover your health and strength, and I'll bless you, and you'll be like a well-watered garden. This is what God is saying to us, the church. But we get all political with it and try to move it away. I thought this was a great example. Think of millions of children and teenagers in this country who have grown up in poverty. They attend failing schools. They live in an environment unconducive to reading or learning. And by the time they're in their teens, many of them are functionally illiterate. This locks them into poverty or worse. It's estimated that a majority of convicts in prison are illiterate. Who's to blame? They say by the time a child's in the third grade, they use the third grade education metrics to determine how many prisons they're building. So the, according to the illiteracy of the third grade level, that's how many prison beds they're looking for in the future. Conservatives would argue that this is the parents' fault. It's due to a failure of moral character and the breakdown of the family. Liberals, however, see it would be a failure of government to stem systemic racism and to change unjust social structures. But nobody says it's the children's fault. They were born into it. Those children that are in poverty, largely because they were born there. Those children are in poverty largely because they were not born into a family like yours or mine. Most of our children in this room, simply because they were born into a family like ours, have a far better chance to have a flourishing, happy life in society. There is an inequitable distribution of both goods and opportunities in this world. Therefore, if you and I have been assigned blessings and goods in this world by God and don't share them with others, it's not just stinginess, it's injustice. Everything I have, I've been given by God. Therefore, I'm responsible to live that way. Last, the doctrine of grace. Guilt doesn't produce justice. Grace does. Grace does. Once we realize we've been justified by grace. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Nobody in this room is saved because anything you did. If you're trusting anything you did for salvation, you're not saved. Because you can't save yourself. <laughs> I can't save myself. I can't cleanse my sin. I can't take away my iniquity. I can't, I can't 
loose myself from my past. I can't undo my wrongdoings. Only one can do that. And he's called Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And it was only because of his generosity and his goodness that I'm here. But by the grace of God, I could be like any other person that I would meet on a daily basis. I could be the drunk on the corner. I could be the cocaine addict in recovery. I could be the prostitute trying to feed her kids. I could be any of those people, but by the grace of God. And if we ever think that we're anything other than that, we're in trouble. If we ever think that we're prideful enough to think somehow because of our upstanding goodness or whatever that we are saved outside of Jesus' blood alone. One of these days we're going to stand before the throne of God and we're going to be singing praises to the blood of the Lamb and there's going to be preachers and prostitutes. There's going to be lawyers and drug addicts. There's going to be doctors and housewives. There's going to be divorced and married. We're all going to be there and there's only going to be one reason. Anybody's there and it's because of the blood of the Lamb of God that's been slain from the foundation of the world to redeem us from our sins. So James says, dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half starved and say, good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with Holy Spirit and walk off without providing him as much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. Do you know why people don't go to church? Because they bend. And they went looking for God, and all they found was outrageous nonsense. A bunch of talk and no action. Religious nonsense. James Robinson, a great preacher. I don't know if y'all remember James Robinson. He became a friend of mine when I worked with Pastor Benny. And he said, him and Arthur Blessed, the guy that carried the cross. Remember him? He said, they were at a big Christian conference. He said, and this little lady came in and she said, would y'all pray for me? I want to come back to the night session, but I can't afford the $20 parking. James said, in my religious way, I said, yes, ma'am. He said, I reached out and prayed. He said, Arthur just looked at me. He said, I looked at him. I said, are you going to pray? He said, no. Here's $20. He said, you're a fool to pray. You had the answer in your pocket. God won't answer your prayer. You had to answer with him. Religious nonsense. See, once you realize you're saved by grace, not by works, that you're justified, then you become a person who loves justice. Because you realize you were condemned, but by the grace of somebody else, you're alive. Our problem is in America, we read Matthew 5, 8, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be filled. We read that blessed are the middle class in spirit. Because we've got a mentality, we think that maybe it's a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of us that actually saves us. 
That's why you got religious people that would sit in a meeting with me and the mayor and not want to fellowship with me because of doctrinal differences. They're not a bad person. They just never had a revelation that they're saved by grace. They just never fall, fallen as low as I have to realize I can't get myself up. If, I, if you could pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, believe me, you would have already pulled yourself up. But you get to a place and everybody will eventually get there where you'll realize I cannot pull myself out of this. Only God can do that for me. God's free generosity to us at infinite cost to Him was the only thing that saved us. And so an old Scottish preacher preached this message, Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than receive. He said these words, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like Christ in giving. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. But you do have objections. Maybe my money is my own. What if Christ had said my blood is my own? My life is my own. Then where would we have been? Maybe the poor are undeserving. The answer to Christ might have said, well, these are wicked rebels. Would I lay my life down for these? I would surely give my life for good people, but not for these. But no, he left the 99, and he came after the one, and he gave his blood for the undeserving. How about the poor may abuse it? Answer, Christ might have said the same, yea, with far more greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. I've often thought about Jesus saving me. Not only did I get to enjoy my sin for a season, then I got it paid for. Jesus paid for it and didn't even get to enjoy it. And those of you who have never enjoyed sin, you've never really been in sin because sin is very pleasurable. Now you've got religious on me at the end of this message, right? I mean, everybody here, sin is very fun or you wouldn't do it. It's pleasurable, the Bible says, for a season, the wages is death. I got the pleasure, Jesus got the death. Talking about abusing somebody, talking about using somebody. How could we ever complain about somebody using us when we used him in such a tangible way? Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Jesus, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and to the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money he wants, but your happiness. Remember his own word, it is more blessed to give than receive. I'm telling you, God is a releasing a spirit of justice in the earth, and it's about to flow through the church like a mighty river, and it's about to unlock a harvest of souls that we've never seen before because the goodness of God is what leads men and women to repentance, and they're about to taste and see that the Lord is good through my life and your life, and many are going to turn to the Lord in this season in the name of Jesus. Amen. This has been a presentation of Word Alive International. 
National Outreach, 122 Allendale Road, Oxford, Alabama. Reach us by phone at 256-831-5280 or at our website, wordalive.org. This has been a production of Word Alive Creative Arts.